And now, do you like Prince movies? Hey, everybody. Welcome to Do You Like Prince Movies? So what are we going to do this week? Uh, don't ask me that because I might forget. But no, I remember. Okay. We're going to talk about Daredevil. Yeah. Streaming Marvel's Dare Netflix's Marvel's Daredevil. Okay. And the Oscar Isaac Dom Hall Gleason movie Ex Machina. That's right. Yeah. Your memory seems to be working fine. We just talked about this. And we're gonna talk about while we're young. The Noah Bombach movie starring Ben Stiller, Adam Driver, and Adam Horowitz. All the all the Adams. In one film. Oh my god. Yes, all the Adams in one film. And then we got a jam. That's gonna blow your mind. I've heard that. I've not heard the jam. I've heard the I mean it's not gonna really blow your mind. It'll just it'll allow for us to have a really interesting conversation about something that about someone that we never really talk about anymore, but who is very present in our in our culture, even if we don't entirely appreciate how much he's given us over the last almost twenty five years. I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay, good. You should be. So, uh, you wrote a really inviting, enticing piece about Daredevil that went up on the site today. Today being Tuesday. Today being Tuesday. Uh, and I, I can tell you that at your behest, I don't know if you actually asked me to watch it. You, I think you mentioned you were watching Daredevil, so I said... Sure. It's right next to the show you also asked me to watch. So I guess I'll just check that out, too. I am. Yeah, I'm, I'm shilling in my, pri- my private life for Netflix one person at a time. I'm hand selling the Netflix streaming offerings. Uh, you should check out job. BoJack Horseman while you're over there. It's right there. And there'll be one click over. Um, that's still I'm going to finish the two shows I've got going. Yeah, I think you probably should. Uh, yeah, I spent the whole weekend watching Daredevil. Uh, away, you know, it's it's weird how long thirteen hours of of Netflix feels when you're sort of trying to cram it into a day and a half. Um, one of the things I wrote about is just the feeling of you know, some things were not meant to be binge watched in that way. You know, I'm agreeing with you. This it's, is me agreeing with you. Oh, I can t- I can see it now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, before I'd have to say I agree. Now I can just shake my head. Yes. Um. No, I I, I think philosophically we have discussed this. I do not agree with binge watching i don't i mean i don't because it's one of the few things that has a term that makes total sense to me like it it, you are actually binge what you're you're binging and you're watching you are binge watching yeah it's not it doesn't have a positive connotation there's nothing positive about it it is a it is gluttony It, it it just makes you feel really gross so i'm watching bloodline because you asked me to watch it uh we can talk about that when i'm done yeah, that's one to uh, talk ha- about at the end. Yeah, I'm halfway done. I'm halfway through. Uh, and I watched three episodes of Daredevil and was like, I think I'm going to take a month off from this show now because I shouldn't have. I, I've watched it three episodes in three days. And I thought, eh, I'm not. I'm OK. I'm, I'm not really into this, but I'm going to keep going. Um, I should be watching Game of Thrones instead. <laughs> But I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. Oh, my point with the binge watching is just that I am going to go back to a normal television watching model with the shows that I have all the episodes, access to all the episodes of. So on Mondays, I'm gonna watch one episode of Daredevil, one episode of Bloodline, and one or two Game of Thrones. I love that. Do you have time slots worked out? Is like, is like Daredevil gonna, is on I'm Mondays. I'm gonna make at my eight. own. Yes, I'm going to make my own TV grid according to the, to what I have access to. I'm going to watch Mad Men, the last seven episodes or whatever, or the six episodes that are left, or five. I'm going to watch those live. Sunday night. I'm going to yeah. come up. Yeah, I'm going to keep with Blackish. I'm going to keep watching all my ABC shows. I'm going to watch those live too. But in, in on Mondays and Wednesdays and maybe Fridays, because that used to be a day people watched TV in their house. I'm going to block out time to watch these other shows. I'm not going to binge watch anymore. I reject that model. So, I mean, maybe I'll watch two episodes in a week, but it's going to take me at least another month to get through Bloodline. I'm sorry. And Daredevil and the three seasons left to have a Game of Thrones. Look, I really support that. 
I think it's, it's just it, it feels yeah it feels wrong it just feels I wrote in this thing that it actually if something is not made it, unless something is like a you know 13 hour movie and they've just chopped it up at hour increments which certain things do feel that way Bloodline feels a little bit more like that Daredevil feels like a show and it feels like and, and watching a bunch of them in a row suddenly you realize like how samey it is in a way that I don't think you necessarily would from from week to week that was something that right. I wrote about in the thing that it, it brings out. It doesn't it, it does, does the show a disservice in a way to watch it at that at that kind of length and that kind of exposure. Also, it's just you just get tired of it and you just forget what's happening. It's weird. And things seem things that would not bother you as much sort of boring parts suddenly bother you because you're like, I could be outside, you know, as opposed Ooh, to like if you were just yes. sitting there watching it. If you're just sitting there watching it at two in the afternoon on a sunny day, you're kind of like, oh, OK, this is, you know. This, I'm wasting my life. You, th- that feeling is, is more pronounced, I think. This is the other point. thing, right? Yes. So this is why turning it into a, pl- a primetime block on like a Monday night, because, you know, I- I'll record WWE Raw and watch that some other time and use my new of course. TV grid to watch things that I would rather be doing at night instead. I will not watch TV during the day. I mean, unless we have to, unless it's an emergency or something like that. But um, let's talk about Daredevil very quickly because I, I mean, don't feel, don't be afraid to spoil anything because I don't, I'm not that invested. There are people who might be, but I'm sure they've already watched all of it. So don't worry. Yeah. Also, these are so far we're in territory that is has been covered in, in comics that came out 30 years ago. I mean, it, it, we're still there's nothing really. There's a, there's one sort of departure from canon that i can think of that happens toward the you know back end toward like 12 or something but yeah spoilers if you don't want to know what happens on daredevil you know, click out do something else uh yeah so i mean were you a daredevil fan going into this did you know anything about the mythos were you aware like you know so bored <laughs> i was so bored daredevil captain america i liked i was a mutants person i liked mutants and i put up with fantastic four um no, I was not a Daredevil person at all. I liked Matt Summers. Matt Summers. That's a mistake already. That's I liked, another guy with red glasses who's right. tight. It's actually not that. <laughs> Scott it's Summers. An honest mistake. Yeah. He's a little no, bit Scott I liked Summers. His hair. I was going to say, I liked his hair. Yeah. I liked the other blind guy. Or the like, like sight, sight challenged person. Yeah, Matt Murdock was, he had the better hair. Scott Summers. They're, they're like brotherly in some way. They reminded me of each other. But I never really read Daredevil. I could have cared less. I like Kingpin, though. Yeah. I, I mean, the Kingpin is – and the Kingpin becomes a really interesting character in this show. I think the, I, I, the thing that I wrote was kind of a love letter to Vincent D'Onofrio's Kingpin, uh, which is the role that he was born to play, apparently. He's really it's, – it's kind of, he looks kind of perfect. They didn't, they didn't make it – like when they draw the Kingpin now, it's like they, he's, you know, ten times the size. He looks like a barrel, you know, like in the in – Right. The, no, that like, was appealing about – that was kind of what was appealing about him. Yeah, he's like a circus freak of some sort in a really nice, like, suit and an ascot and a zircon. You know, he looks like Daddy Warbucks, like, inflated. And this like, – he's a little more <laughs> realistic version of that. But he's still – is big and there's just a lot of shots of, like, D'Onofrio's head kind of, like, Colonel Kurtz, like, in the darkness. And, you know, mm-hmm. I was – I really enjoy that about this show. And it's just a great performance. And it's just one of those weird performances. It's like – it's like Jeff Bridges in Iron Man where it's a performance that's kind of larger than life in a way that some of these movies kind of aren't. It's a lot of, you know – because I look at this. This is part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's a, it's a shift in tone away from some of that and then D'Onofrio most dramatically. But, yeah, no, he is – I mean, you get him confused with Scott Summers because it's another – uptight marvel hero who takes on a lot of stuff he's a little bit he's like a little bit spider-man a little bit cyclops and he never really became anything until the late 70s early 80s when frank miller came in and sort of made it into this really gritty crime book and that's kind of what this show is trying to represent um is that period of the thing where they stripped away because he used to like be usually be like any other sort of comic book he met aliens and stuff and like there was a real sci-fi aspect to the sort of those 60s daredevil books and it yeah, never really caught on as anything i think it was like it would it actually would become like bi-monthly by the time frank miller came in um so yeah this is that this is the origin story again kind of tells the origin parses it out in a kind of lost flashback kind of way over the course of 12 episodes i did not enjoy the first episode i will just put that out there i watched the second episode because i love you two is awesome though the second yes, one really is good. It's much better than than episode one. I don't get El- Elden Henson. I don't get that character. Yeah, what, what they never Wally? really. 
he's foggy. He's the I mean foggy, he, yeah. He's the law partner. Um, it's it, it, yeah. He's sort of he's the comic relief guy. I wanted him to be he's a little more. He's not funny. You he, made this point. Yeah. Nothing that goes on between the, the the two of them and and the girl is terribly funny. Yeah, they laugh. They laugh a lot as if there's going to be a, a, a freeze frame and some credits, and then they keep laughing, which is a very awkward moment. Always, they're always like, "Ha ha!" Anyway, back to the law. <laughs> but there's that. Mo- it's like you know, daredevil. Like, but then it never actually goes there. It's just like because the jokes aren't funny. They're just. But you're supposed to believe that they're really kind of becoming friends. And there's a moment where like Karen at la- later on in the show where they're all sitting together, and it's clearly they're like, "Can we have a can we have a scene that establishes that they're real good friends now?" And they're all sitting around eating Chinese food. And Karen Page says, "Other like, this is really nice. This is what it should be." It's like, and you're like, oh, "I don't believe that you're friends. I don't believe that you actually like each other." Yeah, uh, I mean, that's, I don't know. Maybe a, when you make thirteen episodes of something that maybe they make it faster and they don't have time to bond. I don't know. It, it doesn't. It, it yeah, th- that part of it didn't. No, work. it's just chemistry. You either have it or you don't. Like it, you don't. You only need one episode of TV for that to be established. That there's some connection among these people that's that's there. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it gets it gets better in that in that way, but you know, uh, I, I feel like that that hallway fight at the end of two is probably the best moment of the first season. That whole that raid style. It, it's That's really what an amazing. Got me to episode three. Yeah, and it, and there's nothing else. Like they, they they kind of like spent it all on that in some ways. Like I, that, that tracking shot up and down the hall. There's apparently apparently it's all one shot. So yeah, I mean no it, it looks it that is very impressive. Well, before we we're gonna move on, but I just want to hear you explain why this show is in the context of what marvel is doing with its properties why it matters more or why why it works better than something like agent of shield or some of the other movies that are meant to sort of tie directly into the main sort of age of ultron all that black yeah. hole i mean that's what what i like about this in the pilot there is a reference to an allusion to uh, the events of the first Avengers movie, because you're in Hell's Kitchen, which is sort of hilariously still in the Marvel mythology, uh, uh, like the worst neighborhood in New York, which is hilarious. It's well, like, I didn't know what Hell's Kitchen was until Daredevil, actually. That's one memory I do have of the comic book. Yeah. I thought there's really a place called Hell's Kitchen. <laughs> yeah, you find that. It's like, that sounds horrible. And then you realize. Yeah, it sounds like, really horrible. It's like. And then there was uh, that Phil Joano movie with. Uh, Sean Penn and Robin Wright Penn. Do you remember that State of Grace? Yeah. It was also set in Hell's Kitchen? But, well, about the Irish... But isn't like, that in the 30s or something? It's like the no, Irish it's No, it's like, like... That's a modern movie, I think. I, oh, okay. I think it was set... I think it was, like, in 1990s, Hell's Kitchen. I mean, I don't really know a lot about the history of Hell's Kitchen, but, uh, you know, when when I lived in New York, it was like, oh, there's a lot of uh, places to eat here, and then you can go to a Broadway show right over there. Like, there was nothing And about, then a gay bar! Yeah, there's it's great. You know, it's cool. Right. But, like, then, in Marvel continuity, it's still... It's this place that Daredevil came from. That's the roughest neighborhood in New York. It's still kind of like a it's like a you know Luke Sant version of New York, you know. Mm-hmm. And like there's it, it, and so they can't really they can't exactly do that. Like they can't make that argument. But in the pilot, and I do enjoy this. Like they kind of hand wave that away by saying like whatever it used to be. It became a sort of like the property values went down when a bunch of space stuff fell on it during the Avengers fight. They don't say the Avengers ever, but it's clear. It's like during the incident, which is clearly when like the sky opened up in the Joss Whedon Avengers movie and a bunch of like goblins poured out of it and, you know, tried to destroy New York and there's big fish things swimming around. Apparently a bunch of that landed on Hell's Kitchen. And so now the property values are low and Hell's Kitchen is then this is the part that I think is really smart is being gentrified. As a result of this, and developers are coming in, and you know, lo and behold, the developers are oh, you know no. nefarious. Yeah. Okay. Like it, 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 it's not they don't really do that much with it, but that is the extent of how much it touches these other movies. There's never that dumb moment when they're like, you know, all the important scientists: Albert Einstein, uh, Schopenhauer, uh, Doctor Bruce Banner. Like when they just drop that <laughs> thing in there, you know. There's that moment like in, in like in Captain America where they're like, oh, you know, Stephen Strange. Like pause <laughs> for like so everybody can elbow the person next to them, you know all that. Like I get, I get so annoyed by that stuff because it's never. I, I know what it all means, and it's never enough for me. 
you know, but it's also like, it, I'm just like, just don't do it if you're not going to do it. If you can't afford to have Robert Downey Jr. come and show up in this scene as Iron Man might, just don't talk about him. You yeah, know, and I feel like that's the problem with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. There's a lot of like, okay, we can't, we can't actually afford to even have Samuel L. Jackson be in this show. It's like, but, it, you know, but we'll talk about all these people and like, we'll mention, we'll be like, we're going to say the absorbing man's real name. You know, we'll just say like, you know, what, like whatever it is, we'll say Crusher Creel. And so everybody will be like, oh man, it's on now. You know, like there's a, there's like a guy who's kind of deathlock on that yeah, show. Yeah. I don't, it's, so it's, just, it's like, we're supposed to get excited about these things because it just sort of touches the movies in some way just kind of brushes right. up against them. But like this one is, you know, and it, all it is really is like we're, they're laying down some groundwork for something, you know, down the line. And it's a really unsatisfying experience. And this, it, this just sort of establishes that we're in that same world. And then it's like, but here's a completely different story that has nothing to do with it. You know, like there's never like, which I really liked about it. Like, it's not, you know, it, it does not feel like a tie-in. It does not, which is how Daredevil always felt. It was like Daredevil was off on the side doing his own thing, and occasionally, you know, like I think like Captain America is, and Spider-Man are in the Frank Miller Daredevil here and there, but essentially, it is an autonomous world, and it's a different genre. And I always feel like that's the problem with these, the whole Marvel thing in particular. It's like it's not; they're all just superhero movies. It's not like oh, let's make a movie. You know, like, I feel like Doctor Strange should be a horror movie and like, you know, this should be a crime story and like all the and, and it, they should be different genres besides just, you know, comic book movie because comic book movie is not a genre, you know. Right. So so this is a promising thing and they're going to make like four more of these shows and they're all going to tie together and like, you know, they will they're building another little sort of sub universe. And I'm, I'm excited for A.K.A. Jessica Jones, which is the TV version of Alias with uh, Kristen Ritter playing uh, the, the title character in that which is oh. i guess the next one so i'm looking uh, forward to i that. look forward to that yeah. okay so it's well, gonna we'll be happen. right back we will be Ex right back machina Ex machina what about wesley what about him he's dead found in a basement a couple holes in his chest thought maybe that was you no well i'm dead now yeah i'm sorry also i died a, that's a spoiler character you've never heard of doesn't make it out of the first season of daredevil sorry anyway so uh i had the i was excited to see this alex garland science fiction film that he directed on his own without danny boyle's assistance uh or danny boyle calling the shots and alex garland writing the script is called ex machina it is about a computer programmer software engineer who is allegedly randomly selected we soon find out otherwise to go to the island of dr moreau like lair of of the owner of the company whose name is nathan who's played by oscar isaac um and Dom Dom gleason plays the programmer or software engineer he arrives he is you know, very slowly is ex is explained to him what he's doing there, and he's basically there to test Nathan's new AI system to see if it passes the Turing test, which more or less amounts to whether or not a piece of artificial intelligence has the characteristics of a human of humanity of a human being. Um, that's a very exciting premise. I, I was in. I wanted to know where this was going to go. And then the device, the AI sort of walks out. And her name is Ava. And she comes over and she says hi to, to – she introduces herself to Caleb, who is the Dominic Gleeson character. And I just had this feeling that I, I have been here before. And there is almost nothing this movie can do to disabuse me of my instant exasperation of what, 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 what this premise is and what it is going to lead to. Because pretty much it's it, there's only one place it can go. It's just a question of how severely it's going to go there and, and commit to the, to the darkness that it's going to try to unfold. And I, I don't know. I, was, I, I enjoyed it until I didn't enjoy it anymore. At what point, though? I mean, it was just—it was just the moment when you're like, "Oh, I know what's going to happen." Clearly, someone has been 
clearly um, this robot you know, has not been built for altruistic reasons. Right, right, right. Of course, of course, of course. I, I but. I guess maybe, but it, it still feels to me like it's a little bit, of, there's a little bit of cheating that goes on. Uh, Alex Garland is really good at establishing a mood. There's a real dread in this movie that I really, really like. On the soundtrack, there's like a pulsing heartbeat that, that goes on in a lot of the scenes in, in the basement lair. Basically, his house is one of those very chic places that often winds up in architecture magazines that I wind up reading. Or like, you know, the Times home and garden, the New York Times home and garden section. Yeah, it's very falling water. It's kind of cut into the side of a a rock face. And there's exactly, exactly. So underneath that, there is this giant lab that is also kind of like a boutique hotel. And I loved this, the art direction. I loved the, the, the use of sound. Um, I mean, a lot of those things are enough to get me through a movie, but at some point I realized once Caleb and Ava start having these conversations and there are some things that go on between them that that occur seemingly unbeknownst to Nathan, there's this real tension set up among the three um, among those three characters about what Ava and Caleb will conspire to do, what what does Nathan know, and then what has Nathan actually designed this, these these automata to do. Um but I realized that a lot of the movie is sort of a lot of what the movie is doing is using that atmosphere to kind of get away with what, what would read to me on the page as a pretty shallow screenplay. Right. Well, yeah, it starts with the fact that it's not a real Turing test like they eventually explain right. it. But it's a weird it's a, it's a weird take on the Turing test because the whole point of the Turing test is that you actually you don't know who's, that you're dealing with. You don't know if you're dealing with a machine. Right. That's right. the idea of the yes. Turing test. And at some point, they ex- he, Nathan explains why that isn't that. But it does seem like somebody was – like Alex Garland was like, yeah, we'll do the Turing test. And then someone pointed out that that's not a real Turing test. And he's like, oh, don't worry about it. Like, and just, you know, it feels like it's hand-waved within the script itself. Right. You, know, you, don't, have to, you don't have to worry about that. So like that, that, started, to, you know, that started to bother me because it you – know, and it's, it kind of – it leads you – Inevitably, anybody, if you've seen like Blade Runner, you've seen all these things like it, it, sooner or later, you're, you know, you're going to get to the moment where he started where Donald Gleason starts to be like, wait, am I, you know, starts doing this in the mirror and like tries <laughs> to figure it out. And it like it kind of builds you. It, it builds up a long way in that direction. And then sort of it's like, no, don't worry about it. You know, I, like, I don't know. It, it, I, I think it's a triumph of production design and music and all that stuff working together. I agree that all of that stuff really works well and it does build an amazing atmosphere. I have this thing about, you know, I was, I was thinking about this from, you know, the, I mean, a couple of movies recently, but sort of like it, it, like yuppie horror, how like this now, like that kind of house that we're talking about, that sort of postmodern yes. house and like yes. all the sort of, you know, Oscar Isaac, like juicing and, you know, everything, all the all the tech and all the sort of really like kind of like, you know, earthy kind of wallpaper magazine stuff like that is now a thing that we, we come to associate with sort of dread and terror. Like there's been a lot of movies recently that sort of like use that as the, the, the seat you know, of, yeah, of that. Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley esque, yes. like the tentacles of of, of 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 Silicon Valley reaching out into, you know, where you and I live as people who don't live in San Francisco or the Bay Area. Yeah, these are the people that we now sort of worry are kind of planning our future and you know, sell, buying and selling our future and all those things. And there's a great, I, I do think the moment when it's revealed like how he created this AI that it's all sort of. That it's this using the map of affinities created by Google, like that feels very real to me. That idea, like it's you know that that's what they're ultimately going to do. Like they're not data mining us to be like, oh, you'd you'd probably like buy this CD or something like that. Like the, you know in that larger sense that like they're you know building a model of consciousness from what we're sort of searching with our little lizard brains on because it's clearly Google. It's called like Blue Book. It's like Google Facebook. You know he invented. Yeah, that. somebody read some Wittgenstein in in college and was just like, ah, yes. ding dong. Yeah, and so he's so like that 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 part of it, you know, like I, I like that idea of it. It all it puts all these sort of interesting things on the table, but it's kind of I mean, it is the Alex Garland problem. I'm a really big fan of the first two acts of Sunshine as well. Like I yes. love that movie. We for, agree like, that yeah. movie is 
It's awesome. It's so close to great. It creates like such a great, you know, version of it. the world that it builds is so awesome. And then eventually it's like, but no, there's a crazy space zombie who's like has no skin and is like gonna be yeah, like it becomes a monster movie at the end. And like that's it. You know, it, it's still cool and still fun. But whatever sort of it has been building to for that from that point. And then, you know, so this is just kind of like when is the robot going to get loose and start killing people? And like, you know, you just sort of you get there and it's like I love Oscar Isaac in this movie. I thought he was I, I really, you know, I just continue to dig him in things and I will watch him in anything now. You know, he's uh, perfect. He's great. But he's, he's not he's in a different movie. Yeah. He's he's having a lot of fun. He's training for Star Wars on the set of this movie, which is cool. He's yeah. Lifting, you know, he's doing free weights and all that stuff. Uh, but yeah, you just but you just kind of know it's like sooner or later it's you know okay, he's you know he's drinking to excess because clearly he's been having sex with the robots. You just know it. You just know the minute it's sort of it's all set up. The minute he's like, yeah, I gave it a vagina. Like that. You're like that's yeah. <laughs> that that's what's gonna happen. That that's what's gonna happen. That nobody nobody would give the robot a vagina for any other purpose. So yes, it. It this this vagina that I gave this robot now needs a penis. <laughs> oh look, I just happen to have one. Let's see how it goes. Look for science. For science. For science. For science. Yes. I mean, it is interesting. With well, the interesting thing, the thing I thought about was that we've at least now progressed as a culture to the point where we can recognize that that's not okay. You know that our relationship with sort with. <laughs> No, because no, it's like I, I'm with you. I'm with like you. weird science and stuff like that. There's like so many things, like you know, that they can, you know, there's not a lot of ethical conversation in weird science about like whether this is okay or not. You know, but here's my here's my to build issue a robot this... and then have sex with it. Yes, okay, but my issue with this movie is it spends ninety percent of its screen time not ne- not explicitly condoning it, but like using that that presumption as the narrative engine and then for the last like 10 percent of the movie oh then it becomes this thing where like the the person who creates these these like walking sex bots has to be punished do you know what i mean yeah like you know it's coming you know there will be some comeuppance but what i didn't really enjoy was the kind of you know it's it wants to do these two things and does neither like it it it's it's more interested ultimately in doing the former and the latter isn't an afterthought but it's just like the stuff with with Wittgenstein and the data mining these are all ideas that that have no real explication and are there as plot points as opposed to uh like launch pads of, of, of exploring these ideas. And so for me as a, as a, as a kind of like horror, as a technological horror thriller, as a work of science fiction, it feels really, it feels a little bit cheap. Yeah, no, I know what you're saying it. Cause it, cause all that stuff is ultimately there just to sort of dress up what is basically, yeah. Like a, a, a sort of robots, angry robots on the loose kind of right. film. I mean, you know, like I watched all of Joss Whedon's dollhouse all you of it. Did? Yes. <laughs> I'm that like, guy. Like, did you binge watch or do you watch it like a like as it was delivered to you? Uh, second season I watched as delivered. First season I watched, you know, big chunks of um, back. You know, so I, I forget. I had some reason why I had to do it. And like, that's not a good show. But they did sort of they, they did explore a lot of these issues in a, in a more nuanced kind of way. And about, and, you know, and uh, like ultimately, like. You know, I just was thinking about, you know, people creating sort of these, you know, in movies like, you know, men creating female AI entities in their own image and stuff like that. Yes. And like this feels like this feels kind of along the same lines as her to me, you know, in without mm. without the body. And like and her is a much more pure and sweet movie because there's no physicality involved in it. So there's ultimately nothing, you know, gross about it because it's ultimately you're not sort of abusing some, you know. But she also has a point of view in her, too. So there is this – it does become this kind of – there's a harmony between these two people that then breaks, right? The more conscious she becomes, the the more disinterested in in him he gets. Mm -hmm. And so obviously the movie you actually want to see is the movie that happens after the credits for this movie start rolling. Right where she's out in the world, yeah. When it turns around. into Eve of Destruction, basically. Yeah. Remember that movie? <laughs> Gregory yes. Hines 
And um, what's that woman's name? I can't even remember. That that off Glenn Close actress yeah. who's in all teaching everything, like in small parts. Um, I know exactly. Anyway, I, I can I can picture her. Yeah, there's a whole 1991 run. or 1992's Eve of Destruction. Yeah, like Deadly Friend. Wes Deadly Craven's Friend. Deadly Friend, Ooh. which is awesome. Deadly like, Friend. There was a whole it was a whole genre, and now we've supposedly with like this. You know, we should. I think the idea is that we're going to look at this and be like, oh, we've come so far. We're really now exploring the philosophical aspects of this thing. But I kind of don't – I don't know that we really are ultimately. I think no, we're talking think, about them. We're putting them out there, but then we're not re- – there's nothing really happening. I think the Scarlett Johansson I Am Technology trilogy is I – think, I think it's way more interesting and gets a lot more done and also allows for you to have problems with the male points of view in all three of those movies in some way while also – in in their respective ways being really philosophical about what it means for men to only to think about technology as as a kind of eve story you know in all, in in under the skin lucy and her i mean they all are sort of garden of eden temptation violation stories um that that give a lot of credence to to the to scarlett johansson's character as an agent, as a kind of agent of, of of herself, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, that makes sense. This one, this one, not so much, but it does have Oscar Isaac disco dancing in a in a hoodie that sort of is like unzipped, like a, an like open a, hoodie, by an the way, open hoodie, like a, a, a open to the to the navel, like a Buck Rogers kind of hoodie thing. Just yeah, we should we actually we should maybe just talk about the woman who plays. The the thing that that tips you off for this movie is is Kyoko, the housekeeper, the Japanese housekeeper, who for a person for a scientist not to be curious about why this woman is so weird and for him to take it at, at face value, Nathan's expl- explanation of this housekeeper is such a dingbat and because she's Japanese and she doesn't understand any English, it's just like okay, that seems somewhat plausible to me. Right. It doesn't nothing. It doesn't connect for you that like, yeah, this this robotic lady, this like super robotic lady who works in the robot maker guy's house. I mean, I you know, there is the there's the window dressing or whatever of like, oh, he doesn't realize that the technology is there to make a more humanoid robot than the one that he's talking to. You know, one that has like real skin that looks like a person. Fair enough. You know, because also, she is very – Ava is robotic. She does have a little bit of a like – you know, her movements have a, you know, a servo motor kind of quality and she's – you know, she talks like the Midnight Marauder program a tiny bit. And so then, you know, that there's a regular <laughs> – there's this person just walking around like who's like a Blade Runner robot who just looks like a human being. You know, I guess maybe you don't figure that out. But yeah, it's just – it's one of those things where it's like either this movie is just saying like of course this guy also has a creepy silent Asian fetish. And keeps right. this lady around. Well, we that discover purpose. that 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 all of his previous, all the the prototypes are at least two of them or three of them are, are like women of color. Yeah, he's like it's like they're they're the sex slaves, and this this Ava is something that like needs to be freed. She's the one who's like, I'm going to cause the revolution. I'm going to get out of here. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And the the rest of them is like are, are hanging in the closet, and there's never any thought of like you know I guess we should. Uh, do something about that as well. That's such, that's the cliche that really made me roll my eyes. Like, oh, okay, I'm that. You asked me when the moment was. I knew the moment Kyoko shows up. I'm like, oh, okay. I know what this guy is all about. I know. I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but I know based on his sex fetish that, like, this is this is the this is the woman. He, this is the, the the robot that he's having sex with and is abusing and gets off on abusing her. And then they have that really great disco dance moment. And I'm just like, all right, you know what? I am not enjoying this. I'm enjoying that. Um, and I just wish the movie had had some – I wish it had more wit along the lines of a, of a sequence like that. And the courage of its conviction to sort of like explicate these ideas that it's throwing at us. I, I don't know. I mean I just – I wanted a lot more from this movie than I actually got. And the thriller that I get is not that interesting ultimately either because it kind of gives up on that too. Yeah. No, I kind of I guess it's weird to say that, you know, I want a movie where a person uh, having sex with a robot that they built works out for them. I don't necessarily feel that way, but I kind of feel like we've seen all of the 
I'm, I'm a little bit just bored of the, you know, don't create artificial intelligence. Ultimately, it's a bad idea. It probably is. But I, I sort of feel like from a movie standpoint, like that's that's the thing that I like about her, that it's like, oh, maybe like when all the AIs rise up and sort of become self-aware and sentient and absorb all the world knowledge, they we will it, they will not go lawnmower man. They will just become like a sort of another kind of race of beings on the planet that we share the world with. Right. Like that's instead, you know, and inevitably it's like because once it goes bad, it always goes bad in the same way. It's just Terminators. It's just that. And it's, you know. I've been seeing that for 25 years or 30 years or whatever it is, you know, watching these movies and like, I'm, you know, I'm ready for something different. And, you know, I, I didn't necessarily get it here. So, yeah. We'll be right Machina. back. Hello. Hi. I'm Caleb. Hello, Caleb. Do you have a name? Yes. Ava. I'm pleased to meet you, Ava. I'm pleased to meet you, too. So, last September, I at the Toronto Film Festival, I saw what I thought to be a very good Noah Baumbach movie. I mean, like, I thought it was really funny, a very funny Noah Baumbach movie about something that movies aren't really about anymore, which is kind of generational class struggle. And this idea of this, this sort of very modern idea about what coolness is and what goodness is like good, like quality goodness, not human goodness, but ultimately in this movie, human goodness too. Um, it's called while we're young. It stars Ben Stiller, Naomi Watts, Amanda Seyfried, Adam driver, Adam Horowitz, Charles Grodin, um, and it's when it's funny, it's really funny, and it's pointed and it's pointedly funny in a way that I thought was really, really smart. The couple played by Ada, by Ben Stiller and Naomi Watts meet this other couple, somewhat by chance, uh, played by Adam Driver and Mana Seafried, and the older couple becomes there are about twenty years difference between these two people, between these two couples. And the older couple becomes obsessed with the younger couple and they're like sort of put on authenticity. Like these are the people who value things that we've, we, you know, the older couple is completely comfortable with digital technology and, and, you know, reading on their Kindles and their iPads and digital music while the younger couple sort of fetishizes handmade products and listening to vinyl and wearing vintage clothes and making your own food. Uh, and I, 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 some of that is a little bit obvious, but I think he takes it in really interesting places. And I just was, I had a, I had a really good time for most of this movie. Yeah. I, this is the thing. I agree with you that it's an, it's a thing that you don't see in movies enough and, right. and that, that you feel that way. I mean, I felt the same way about Greenberg where it was like, I know 10 of these guys, but mm-hmm. I've never seen a movie about this kind of person before. Yeah, this is also a Noah Baumbach movie starring Ben, Aff- ben, ben Affleck. <laughs> it's, it's, what, ben Stiller. Wow, that would be so different. Um, yeah, th- this very, is, yeah, very different. This is the be- it's the beginning. It's the Baumbach-Stiller trilogy, I guess, or the you know it's a duology so far. Um, what's a duology? What do you call it if it's not a trilogy with only two in it? I don't know. Uh, I guess a duology. <laughs> if you're really pretentious and you want to call it a duology because you made two <laughs> films. Um, yeah, so this is I, – I, I, I've never seen that really represented, that thing where, you know, the, the sort of – like the the couple crush, the intergenerational couple crush. And, yeah, that, that feeling of, you know, oh, these people are living a you know more authentic life than I'm living and somehow – even though I've sort of achieved a lot in my life because they seem very, you know, they're very, you know, Stiller Watts, you know, that, you know, they're that couple, they're very well off clearly that things are going okay for them. You know, they're comfortable. They have a lot of, like you said, it's a lot of, you know, iPads and all that stuff. Everything is, you know, but then suddenly it's like, you know, all the, like, this is like, this is the real life that I'm missing out on, you know? And then there's a very interesting, you know, the, what eventually the plot becomes about, you know, career ambition and about the different ways that, 
what that, you know, sort of millennial ambition looks like versus Stiller's very kind of Gen X-y un- discomfort with, you know, really going out and getting it, you know, and like chasing right. after things. Like he's making this very difficult – he's been making a very difficult documentary that sounds like like a less commercial power of nightmares for like eight years. Yeah. It's yeah. like – or six years, something like that. Like he's, you know – he's been making this – there's a great scene where he gets a meeting with this hedge fund guy who's going to maybe give him some money to finish the film. And he starts explaining it and it is the mo- – it's the worst pitch for anything you have ever heard. <laughs> and it's, it's great really because, bad. Yeah. And like, in a, in a, you know, like it's, what I like about that scene is that also the hedge fund guy is obviously like a, you know, jerky hedge fund guy who's like on the, getting emails and like eventually has to like just, you know – dip out and like you know look at his blackberry or whatever and like he's a douchey guy but the joke is on stiller it's not on this guy so yes not it's not on the, the it's art. not in the douchebag right, right you know right. and like that's what i like about these movies is that like it, it, you know and about stiller in these in both of these films is that the willingness to put that onus on him and sort of you know that it's not like this is some great guy that the world doesn't understand like he's actually sort of he's wrong in some sense you know yeah, in like, every sense yeah I, I like Greenberg a lot better. I felt like this was, you know, not to really, I, know, I, I will stop belaboring the comparison, you know, but like there's a lot of moments where it's like, you know, there's a moment when Ben Stiller ruins a party, which is a really fun thing to watch in these movies. But like there's, you know, like it feels like an echo of that previous one, you know, like in, in, a, in a lot of ways, like when you see him just sort of do the worst thing possible i wish this had been funnier because the degree to which it seems uh, sort of you know sketchy and obvious would not bother me as much it Mm -hmm, felt like mm -hmm. he saw it felt like bombach saw neighbors and was like i'm gonna make it my i'm gonna make my neighbors i'm gonna do i'm gonna do i'm gonna make i'm gonna do do, give it the bombach treatment you know and i feel like neighbors is actually ultimately sort of explores a lot of these issues in a more entertaining way i think the exploration i think what neighbors does is is different in some ways in that it's not really interested in the in the in the cultural the the no. the, the joke of this movie the joke of while we're young is we had this same stuff when we were when we were kids and we just liked it it was just the way things were. Right. Or we hated it in a pretentious way. Like we thought this was – there's that moment with like, you know, with the Rocky with the Eye of the Tiger where he's like – Adam Driver's like psyching Ben Stiller up to go into this meeting and he plays him Eye of the Tiger. And there's been that moment when Ben Stiller's like, we used to just think this song was bad, but now I get that it's that it's awesome. And there's a lot of like at the party, like it's sort of, you know, that, the, the, uh, you know, uh, waiting for a girl like you is playing in one party scene yeah. like in Bushwick. You know, and let's I, like I thought that was cool. Like, uh, you know, like, oh, you're going to be it's weird as I, as you grow older, you're going to be haunted by, you know, the ghosts of all the pop culture that you sort of didn't think about when it was new. You know? Yeah, I I think that the thing, the reason I like I, I agree with you. And then now that you're making this point, I do wish I wish the jokes had been sharper. And I think Bombach's thing as a as a as a writer of these kind of social comedies is that. He, I, I mean, I think that he sort of prizes not really having the jokes polished to cut. Do you know what I mean? They're not mm-hmm. lacerating, and they're more presented as these provocative or illustrative ideas that also might be funny, but they're not laugh out loud funny. And there's that one. There's that. I think the one of the more salient things in this movie is the sequence where Naomi Watts is trying to figure out like what to do as inspired by the Amanda Seyfried character. So she goes and takes this hip hop dance class with her and they play, uh, I think it's hit him up. Yes. Tupac's hit him up. And that her not being able to dance to it, but her desperately trying to get the energy of that song produces. I mean, you can't write what Naomi Watts does no. in that scene, but what's funny about it is, I mean, it's intangible because, I mean, Bombach could have directed her to get to that, but you don't get it unless Naomi Watts gets what she thinks is funny about this woman in that class with these people. But I just, I mean, that to me, that's one of the funniest things in the movie. And it also is something that I don't think is on the page in the way that it is in the movie. No. But I think a joke like that gets it this kind of sense of i mean i guess the french term would i mean you know there's a kind of proustian aspect of of 
being represented with things that meant something to you. No, it's not even Proustian. It's like you're given something, you're having nostalgia for something that you haven't even passed yet. You know what I mean? It's not even behind you. You're having nostalgia for something that other people fetishize that you had no, that it meant nothing to you or had no value to you prior to your, to your envy of these other people who have it. Yeah. It's a weird, it's kind of a weird social class envy. We sound like we, we sound like no you know Ben Stiller pitching that documentary when we were sort of explaining that. Like, you know. <laughs> trying to get at what's not funny about this movie or what actually is funny about yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. It's you know yeah. it's really it's about it's a it's a comedy, but it's about being what's not funny. Like it's, yeah, I mean you know. So there's also it's just weird because eventually like there's that sort of rom com like Ben Stiller like has to rollerblade to the big event and you know yeah, take yeah. back his whole thing. You know like that's the thing. I, like I'm I agree with you that like he's not. I just have found him more effortlessly funny in the past and this one felt like him sort of consciously saying like i'm going to make a comedy and then it doesn't exactly work as you know in that in that way for me Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i you know i'm gonna make lighter and funnier and you know but but i think a lot of the social commentary in is really interesting and you know the 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 bushwick of it all is well is well rendered and like the way that you would fall in love with that the way that somebody like stiller would fall in love with that it's weird to watch this movie by the way molly lambert wrote about it on grantland uh, and her piece was very much about being on sort of a cusp, like like being between X and Y, like being mm-hmm. like have, being old enough to have lived through Nirvana, but also to have you know experienced the you know the internet, like as a you know like to have lived in that thing. I very much like this. It was weird to watch this and be like, oh, I'm more, I'm definitely on the on the Ben Stiller side of this age wise because I'm I'm a little older than Molly is. We're a little older than Molly is, and like so there yes. we are. Like in that, you know, it it was it was interesting to look at that and not, you know, identify with the hipster for the first time, you know, to identify with the aging hipster. And so I right. may hate it for that reason, because I think it's sort of it's not very it's a pretty ungenerous and, you know, a pretty doom laden portrayal of both uh, child having and childlessness. At that age, yes, you know, it yes. seems like it's pretty equally kind of, you know, sad for the, you know, for either, you know, because they have, they are childless and that's part of why they're able to sort of go off and do ayahuasca in Bushwick or whatever. But like, the, you know, then they have, then Horowitz and his wife, the, you know, their sort of closest couple friends are like new parents and like that doesn't seem that great either. So No, the person who has the best life and the person who actually is the voice of wisdom in this movie is the Charles Grodin character who is Naomi Watts' character's father who is also an acclaimed documentary filmmaker who Ben Stiller refuses to listen to you. I mean, you have these three generational levels and the person, the oldest person in the movie is kind of a, of a dick, but he also is, is right in some ways in terms of what he thinks the Ben Stiller character ought to do. And the the resist like that character's resistance to, to to the Charles Grodin character I think is sort of the classic generational resistance right where you're older I can't listen to what you're saying because I'm younger and I know what I'm doing more I, you know what my experiences are nothing like your experiences and yet a level a generation like twenty years later there are these kids who obsess them and they're I mean, I think this is the, the thing about the movie that I find really interesting, which is that we're now at, right now we're at this place where being being a middle aged person is it, it doesn't really have a definition the way it had when when the Charles Grodin character became a middle aged person, and that's what those Albert Brooks movies were about in in many ways was crossing this real generational line from being like a hippie bohemian person into the corporate world. Right, because there was and, a time when you had to give that up. Yes, and you, like once, you actually had to give it up to be successful. Yeah, and once we removed that from the equation as something you had to do in order to be an adult, then suddenly there was what? What is the definition of being an adult? We have no idea now. You know, other than other than child, other than having kids, is the only thing that you can do to be like I am now a grown up because I am a parent. That's like the only sort of thing that's left. Everything else it's like I yeah. still listen to the same music, you know, I uh, still smoke weed, whatever it is, like sort of whatever you do, you just can continue to do that. And yeah, I, I know exactly what you're saying. Like it was it's not like oh I have to sort of hang up my dashiki in the closet and my, you know, headband and like go off into the world and like you know put on a tie. Like that's sort of it's no longer the case. So like what does that mean now? 
you know. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, not to, this is probably a larger conversation, and we can come back to it when we talk about the end of Mad Men, but, like, yeah. that's what Mad Men was, is about. Like, the point at which, like, it's, a, it's, it's, it's remembering a time at which, during which being an adult meant something, and it was a real concrete line of social development, where people left the house to earn a living to keep the house. And you had to look a certain way and behave a certain way, um, at least outwardly, in order to achieve those things. And as the decade, as the country seemed to be falling apart, so with it did this idea of of not just adulthood in general, but also masculinity. And I mean, I wish this movie had sort of been more explicitly about that in some ways. I mean, what it turns into, what, what the Noam Baumbach movie turns into is is a thriller in some ways, a moral thriller about Adam Driver's authenticity as a filmmaker and Ben Affleck's, you know, desperation to sort of like expose the fraud of this allegedly authentic guy. Um, And it just, it doesn't go off the rails, but it does go into, it just goes off into a direction that I didn't necessarily think was worthy of the material that had presented this, that set up this problem. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I do think that I, I enjoyed watching these two adult people struggle with what it meant to be a grown up in, in 2014 or 15 versus these other two kids who in Mad Men would have had to have been adults at this point. But we'll never like neither of these generations will have to be a conventional adult, according to like what America said an adult was in like 1950, 60 70 even even in the 80s i mean this was still something that like adults put on suits and went to work they didn't stay at home and work they didn't like you know live off their trust fund in the way that that characters you know the the way people can now yeah no it's weird it's like you know you watch movies and things from you know from previous eras and you, you realize that some you know if somebody says their age it's always weird it's like oh i'm i'm 32 and like they seem 54 like there's no sort of right. like there's yeah, you know, yeah, they're yeah, like yeah. wearing a suit and tie and it's like something you know like i'm the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff i'm 27 and i'm going you know it's just it's really it's it, it's strange like that sort of that permanent permanent youth and obviously you know it's it's interesting to see bombach you know struggling with that and and wrestling with it i don't know it just I did kind of feel like, oh, oh, okay, this is the beginning of his kind of late Woody Allen period where he's mm-hmm, just going to be the mm-hmm. less problematic, you know, because we need a Woody Allen now. You know, we're going to that that role is, you know, somewhat, you know, uh, vexed and like we need somebody to step into that position to kind of make this movie about, you know, these people sort of, you know. And I think like, you know, the interest, the thing, the problem I have with the late Woody Allen movies, in addition to the problem, you know, like the sort of like the the larger problem, the, the right. problematicness. But the yes. problem that I have with them even before, you know, like, like all you know all through these years has been that they don't really they ignore these cultural shifts right like his new york is kind of preserved in amber and it's always going to be woody allen's new york and like you know with very few exceptions like rarely does it ever reflect like anything that's happened since about 1985 you know, mm-hmm. it just looks it's mm-hmm. like this kind of, you know, time capsule version of New York. And so it's interesting, you know, if we get if, if our Woody Allen is going to at least sort of address these kind of cultural shifts, I think that's cool. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to you know continue supporting him. But, you know, it's not I don't know. I wanted I wanted Ben Stiller on rollerblades. If you're going to put Ben Stiller rollerblading, like, you know, commit to it and like really, you know, make it a thing where he's got to, you know, there's jump over some stuff. I don't know. That is that is a very good metaphor <laughs> for the problems of this movie. Uh We'll be right Thank back you. with the Jam of the Week. We're the boring couple with a baby. What have you guys been doing? Tell us something fun. Oh, we met this interesting couple, Jamie and Darby. He's a young documentarian, and she makes ice cream. I don't know what to make of them, honestly. I like her. They make everything. It's infectious. For about 12 hours, I thought I could build my own desk. There's something about being around them that energizes you, you know? How old are they? 20... 25, 26. 26, 27. They're children. Yeah, nine years ago, they couldn't vote. But they're married. Why? You should see this guy's record collection. It's Jay-Z, it's Thin Lizzy, it's Mozart. His taste is democratic. It's The Goonies and it's Citizen Kane. They don't distinguish between high and low. It's wonderful. When did The Goonies become a good movie? When did The Goonies become a good movie, by the way? Uh, I don't know, but somebody somebody outside this office has a VHS of The Goonies in his bag. (laughs) I didn't investigate that. I will do that as soon as the podcast is over, but I... Yeah, I mean, I don't know. 
I as a kid, I didn't have any feelings about the Goonies. I mean, I liked it. I it's like one of my it was one of my favorite movies. But whether it was good or bad wasn't really. I didn't. I don't know. I still don't really know. I'm saying if if, if you're if you're nine, it's cool like the Goonies. After that point, people adults stop liking the Goonies. It's not that good. I'm just saying it. I'm just I'm just saying stop being stop claiming it's a good movie if you're not nine. Oh, putting it out there. Shots fired. Shots fired at the Goonies. Shots fired right at the Goonies. You no, I'm not disagreeing with you. I agree. <laughs> I'm agreeing with you. I'm agreeing with you. But this is the thing about this movie, right? I mean, the nostalgia of whatever. I, I'm going to like that. Where we're going right now is not separate from the conversation we're having about the alleged quality of the Goonies. That's what I. That's what I thought. I thought it would not be inappropriate to raise the quality yeah, of the Goonies. No, this issue. is this is this is a fair question because. My jam of the week. I was out. I don't know what I was doing. Oh, maybe I was listening to my favorite radio station, uh, WXPN in Philadelphia, which you can get streaming anywhere in the world now. And my mind was blown by the artist they were playing on, on this channel. This is an artist who, when he was at his most, like, culturally present and 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 maybe famous although he's you know he's very famous now they weren't playing him i was there not like not not hearing him on the station now they play this song just regularly like it's just there and i'm like oh there's been a whole sea change where this guy I hope I hope we gave you a, a barf bag because I think you might. I'm I'm completely this. I I was thinking Robert Palmer, but it's not. No, it's not. This guy put out an album last year. Who is this? And it's pretty good. It's Lenny Kravitz. This is what a Lenny Kravitz song sounds like. <laughs> is this a new Lenny Kravitz song? It's a new Lenny Kravitz song. I all right. I have a really. It's called the Chamber. Yeah, it's on a record that he put out last year. Um, that is is pretty good. Look, I'm a person who has always liked Lenny Kravitz a lot, and I felt like you know I go in through stages where like as a black person he was doing something that other black people weren't doing at that in 1989 when yeah. Let Love Rule came out. Then I became aware of music criticism and, and like reading people write about how much he stole from other artists and how derivative it all is and what a bad lyricist he is. These things are mostly true. Um, his fetishization of like the 1970s. I mean, talk about while we're young and what he was what he was doing that the Adam Driver and Amanda Seyfried characters are doing in that movie. Yeah, he was doing it too. But no, I, I didn't know that, yeah. I was young. I yeah, I really like those. I love the way those records sounded. Those first couple of Lenny Kravitz records, like that love they, rule, Mama said, yeah, and yeah. Those like, are the first two. Even though, are you are you going to go my way? Is amazing. Like yeah, that's his, that was his big hit record. But yeah. he never got credit. The hipsters kind of rolled their eyes. Yeah, the rock critics like dismissed him. He had many many hits, but I just felt like he could never really win with anybody. Like he was always. He was always a sellout, even though, like, he had never really bought in, but he came packaged as this hippie. And so, like, would a hippie really be interested in, like, doing shiny, such, such shiny, like, catchy music? And so, I don't know, he was always in a in a weird place because he was interested in soul music and funk and rock and dance music. And he found, he repeatedly found ways to do all of those things in one song. And like his Rock and Roll is Dead record um, has this song called Sister Mama Lover on it that is, it's such a sexy song. I think this song is really sexy too. Um, I now recognize this Lenny Kravitz. I can hear the Lenny Kravitzness of it. Of course you can. But By I the way, the video for this record, yeah. if people, for people who don't like Lenny Kravitz and like whatever, what a pretentious asshole. Like, this video drives that right home. It's obnoxious. But this song is great. I also ride for the uh, single that he had off the Blue Crush soundtrack, which has some really good 
like real. I think there's like real vocoder on it. Like he's got some, you know, sort of old. Yeah. He got like that sort of you know, that uh, the, the the Bon Jovi vocoder going. You know, the, the the living on a prayer, like oh whoa, whoa. like it's really yeah. good. That song is great, and I still listen to that all the time. But I I will tell you that when I listen to that song, I go private on Spotify. I'm like I don't want to be. You know, I'm listening to the Blue Crush soundtrack. I the, yeah. I still have I have shame about. You know, uh, you Lenny, know Kravitz. Being a Lenny Kravitz fan, and uh, you yeah. know, I think this is a topic for further investigation. I guess. All right. Why? To be continued. Yeah. To be. Joe continued. Fuentes, excellent. Carlos Silva excellent. David Jacoby, you are all making this video podcast worth doing. Alex, you're the only reason I'm here. And, and and you know, you you as well. I just want to say I got through an entire conversation about Ex Machina without referencing the two cameras that are watching me the entire time that have made me feel really weird, these robots in the room. All right. Well, we'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on Podcasts.